I just had the one telephone number on a piece of folded scratch paper tucked into my wallet. And that was about it. I had no money, no job, no real discernible skills of any kind, and zero prospects. Yippee! It was 1993, and on a bit of a whim, my girlfriend Kim, who's now my wife, and I had just moved from Los Angeles to Portland, Oregon. Oh, by the way, you don't know me, but I'm Jim Walker, and this is Record. A month earlier, we'd visited Portland on a road trip. It was late September, temperatures in the upper 70s, Santa Ana-type winds blowing gently through town. We spent a couple days knocking around, and at some point I turned to Kim and said, we should just move here. Kim said, really? Okay. And that was it. That's how you make life-altering decisions when you're 28 years old. The next day we found an apartment, put a deposit down, and the day after that we drove back to L.A. to get our stuff, tie up loose ends, and say adios. Our friends in L.A. thought we'd lost our minds. Portland? What the hell's in Portland? I give it three months. L.A.'s still going to be here when you guys come crawling back. We had quite the caravan with us on I-5 North on our way up to Portland. Kim drove my truck. My L.A. buddy John drove his truck along with his wife at the time. Kim's mom had flown down from Seattle to help out, so she was in Kim's car. And I was driving a big-ass U-Haul. Of course, there were no cell phones back then, so if we got separated on the road, that was that. We stayed at my folks' house in Northern California the first night. Then we got up and took off early the next morning. The weather held out. We made it up and over the pass at Ashland just fine. But about the time we got to the bottom of the mountain and hit the Oregon state line, it clouded up and began to rain. And rain. And rain. What the fuck is this all about, I thought. See, I hadn't realized that Portland wasn't always in the upper 70s and gorgeous. I knew virtually nothing about any climate other than the one in LA that I'd grown up in my whole life. I had no idea that for pretty much nine months out of the year, the Pacific Northwest is dreary, dark, and pouring. To tell you the truth, I didn't even know such places existed. When we hit Portland proper, it was raining so hard the wipers on the rental couldn't keep up. I was driving this giant truck, sort of guessing where the lines on the road were, and trying to approximate where other vehicles might be, hoping for the best. We arrived with our crew at our new apartment, a cute little one-bedroom in northwest Portland, in a pissing deluge like I've never experienced. And like little dripping ants, we hauled all of our worldly possessions into the two small rooms of the apartment. There were wet cardboard boxes piled high to the ceiling. One thing we hadn't taken into account was accommodations for our dear friends and family who'd been kind enough to help us move. Didn't even cross our minds. So we pulled some blankets out of the boxes and everyone just crashed on the floor. The next day, Kim's mom headed back to Seattle, John and his wife headed back to L.A., and Kim and I suddenly lived in Portland, Oregon. For several days, Kim and I put off the inevitable truth, that we were two adults with no jobs or money, and we goofed off, getting to know our neighborhood, meeting the neighbors in the building, renting videos, and having a great time before the other shoe dropped. 
We lived in the same neighborhood where the movie My Own Private Idaho was filmed, and it was fun to find the streets where our favorite scenes were shot. There were also these places all over Portland we discovered called McMinimans. The McMinniman brothers had refurbished a bunch of old buildings and properties, often in strange locations, and turned them into new hip eateries, bars, and hotels. They were popping up all over the place. One was just outside of town in an old poorhouse and farm from the 30s. Another was in an old weird women's hospital. One was in an old elementary school. All of them had really bizarre and often disturbing art hanging on the walls. The McMinniman spots were really cool and incredibly creepy, and they were kind of our go-to hangouts as fledgling Oregonians. Kim had a background in film production, so she immediately volunteered at the Northwest Film Center, which fairly quickly led to a job at the Oregon Film Office. Her gig was to entice films and television shows to come to Portland and shoot here, and she was great at it. She clicked right into the job and fit right in. I, on the other hand, procrastinated. I knew I needed to do something, and I would, pretty soon. For the time being, though, I set up my little four-track recording studio in the corner of our bedroom. And after Kim left for work in the morning, I'd spend the day recording, working on a project that I'd started in L.A. that hadn't really gone anywhere. I'd just sort of gone cold on it. But now that I'd relocated, I was suddenly filled with new inspiration and ideas. Creatively, everything was great. The only thing that was really bothering me was, I was cold. The heating in our apartment was a handle, like an old sink faucet. You turned it to the right, it was on. You turned it to the left, off. No temperature gauge or anything, on or off. This was January and February, so we never turned it off. But our landlord did. He turned it off from about 11 at night until 7 in the morning. Then he turned it off again from about 9 to 5. This was before computers were so common and before many people worked from home. I was one of the few people in the building who was there all day, and by 11 a.m., I was fucking freezing. I layered up in sweaters, but it didn't seem to matter. I was always freezing, and my nose was always running. I talked to the landlord about this, more on him in a moment, but he said it was building policy to not have the heat on when most people weren't home to use it. I figured, whatever, I'd just deal with it, and I proceeded to catch a cold that lasted for months. I just couldn't shake it. Eventually, it developed into a raspy cough, a real bone rattler, way down deep in the lungs. I just sputter and hack and try to gasp for breath. One day after a few months of thinking that I had tuberculosis, I was sitting on the bed uncontrollably coughing so bad I was getting a migraine. Then suddenly, I coughed so hard, an object came up. It looked like a black, bloody eyeball with torn sinew attached to it. I held it in my hand just staring at it. And that's when it dawned on me. I'd just coughed up 28 years of living in Los Angeles. With no medical degree, I knew this to be absolutely true. This slimy, disgusting black ball of pollution and filth. I'd coughed up L.A. The cough went away immediately, and the cold went away too. Now that I had this new lease on life, I knew I needed to get it together and try to become at least somewhat employed. I still had that phone number buried deep in my wallet, but no. I wasn't quite ready to use it yet. Instead, I tried to count up my assets. I mean, what was I good at? I'd been a jingle singer down in L.A. I thought maybe I could get that kind of work in Portland. But after a little nosing around, 
I was pretty disheartened to find that there really wasn't any work like that here. Once in a rare while, maybe, but certainly nothing steady. On the other hand, there were a few places in town that managed voice actors. The only real voice work I'd done up to that point was doing sound-alike voices for a couple of Ringling Brothers shows down in L.A. One was George Lucas on Ice. I'll give you a moment. You had Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and even American graffiti characters zipping around on the rink, lip-syncing to pre-recorded dialogue with special effects going off all over the place. The lip-syncing was where I came in. I had a friend who worked for the show, and she suggested I put together a demo imitating Indy, C-3PO, Luke Skywalker, and a bunch of others. I am not an impressionist, so feeling very stupid, I put this demo together and delivered it to the studio as I was asked. Funny thing was when I got there, there was a session already going on for the show with a bunch of voice actors. I was standing there at reception when the director walked out, and he said, We're down a guy. You want to work right now? I said, Hell yeah. No audition, nothing. I was thrown into the mix with six of LA's top voice talent. So I'm the new guy, sitting there with all these voice veterans. And they're all very nice to me, considering they didn't have to be. We were in kind of a semicircle there in the tracking room. We've all got headphones on and music stands with the scripts in front of us. Over the talkback, the director said, Okay, this scene is Indiana Jones. Who wants to give it a shot? No one raised their hand. Director said, come on, really? No one wants it? Silence. I raised my hand. I'll try it. Director said, great. Okay, we're rolling. Take one. I said my lines. I know I really didn't sound much like Indy, but maybe in my fear of failure, I managed to capture at least a little bit of the spirit of the character. Director said, hey, that was great. What's your name again? Jim Walker. Terrific. You're Indy the rest of the show. The other voice actors seemed not impressed exactly, but maybe had a teeny bit of respect for me because I'd put my enchilada on the line, attempting to imitate one of the most iconic movie heroes of all time. They gave me a small round of applause. I was like heroin, man. I was there for a few hours, did a bunch of characters, and they paid me a thousand bucks. What? A thousand bucks for goofing off behind a mic for an afternoon? Damn, I wanted more of that. The Ringling Brothers people called me one more time after that, though. It was right before I left L.A. They asked me to be like a utility voice, doing a bunch of characters who only had one or two lines for, wait for it, Aladdin on ice. Now this one will always stick with me. I showed up for the gig at the same studio, a very modest little place in the valley, nothing fancy. I walked in, and there in the tracking room are five voice actors and Robin Williams. That I was not expecting. Holy fuckballs. Talk about being totally starstruck. In the first scene I was in, I was playing a street merchant at a bazaar. That little goddamn monkey steals something, and my line was, Come back here, you cursed ape. I'll have your hands for a trophy. Racist. I really went for it, loud and proud. I remember the line very well because it's still on my voiceover demo to this day. I'll have your hands for a trophy. Robin, who wasn't in the scene but just sitting there waiting, started laughing. Making Robin Williams laugh? Cool. So, circling back to Portland, I decided to try and get an agent and try my hand at being a voice guy. Since my resume was a little thin, I figured I'd, well, just try and bullshit my way in. So I sat down and wrote a stack of fake radio commercials. I then recorded them 
put music and sound effects behind them, and cut the whole thing together like it was a real demo of a bunch of national radio spots that I'd done. I sent it to an agent in town that seemed to be the most prominent, and a few days later the phone rang, and it was Sam who ran the agency. She loved the demo and was very excited to work with a VO talent from the L.A. market that had done so much national work. I met with Sam, we got along famously right off the bat, and she put her feelers out and got me working immediately. I became the voice of a local market chain, then the voice of a car dealership, then the voice of a sporting goods company called G.I. Joe's, and it just went on from there. So, I stand before you now, the humble recipient of a 25-plus year career in voiceover that was predicated on nothing but complete bullshit. Now that I was working and had a little money under my belt, I found I had a little more confidence. And as I'd been putting off what I should have done straight away after moving to town, I finally opened my wallet and pulled out that phone number and dialed. I'd been given the number by the producers at a place down in Burbank called Ad Music, a recording studio where I'd been the lead vocalist on lots of jingles. When the producers there found out I was moving to Portland, one of them said, you know who you should talk to when you get there? A guy named Reed Ruddy, and he wrote the number down for me. Reed was one of the owners of Ad Music, but he also ran a studio in Seattle called Bad Animals. Anyone familiar with monster hit albums from the 80s might know the name Bad Animals as one of the band Heart's biggest sellers. Hart owned Bad Animals. It was their personal studio, but they also rented it to other bands when they weren't using it. Reed Ruddy was the studio manager there. I'm not sure what had kept stopping me from reaching out to him since I'd moved to town. I guess it just seemed a little lame to me to cold call this guy and say, What? Hi, uh, I'm a jingle singer from L.A., and I know you live 175 miles away in Seattle, but I live in Portland and have nothing going on, and, and, and help me? I just didn't know how to make that call when I first moved to town. Now... Feeling a little bit better about where things were, I made the call. The line rang to the studio. A voice picked up. Bad animals, this is Reed. That was easy. I told him who I was, where I was, and what I was up to. And I waited for him to either politely or impolitely blow me off. Instead, he said, man, that's really cool. What are you doing tomorrow? You want to come up and see the studio? Yep, I said. The next day, I drove the three hours to Seattle, found bad animals, and met Reed. Quite possibly one of the nicest guys I've ever met. He didn't have to be. He just was. He gave me a tour of the studio, then took me to one of the control rooms. He knocked on the door. Nothing. Yep, they're all at lunch, he said walking in. Inside, there were tie-dyed psychedelic tapestries hanging all over the control room. Dozens of candles were burning, and incense was smoking out the entire room. There were guitars and basses strewn all over. Pearl Jam's in here right now, Reed said. They sure were, tracking the album that became Vitology. Hey, Reed said, want to have lunch? All my alarms went off. I couldn't figure out why this guy was being so nice to me. After living and working in the scuzzball music and advertising businesses in L.A. for so many years, I figured this guy either, one, had some kind of angle he was running, I was just waiting for the inevitable torrent of horseshit to start dribbling out of his mouth, or, two, he was falling in love with me and wanted to perform perversions. It had to be one or the other. He couldn't just be this nice, could he? 
But I'd come this far and figured I'd see it through. Besides, I was bigger than him. I could whip him if he tried to rub my balls through the pants. Sure, I could eat, I said. Well, it turned out he was that nice a guy. Super cool. He'd been in the business forever. Everyone loved him. Everyone respected him. And he had truly amazing stories to tell. We had lunch. And he wouldn't let me pay no matter how much I insisted. And then he said something that would change the next 20-something years of my life. You know, if you're in Portland, the guy you should talk to is a guy named Tim Ellis, Reed said. Yeah? What does he do? I said. He runs a studio down there called Whitehorse. Great guy. And Jesus, what a guitar player. You should definitely meet him. He wrote down Tim's number for me. And with that, I headed back to Portland. The next morning, I called Tim Ellis. I left a message. Hey, Tim, my name's Jim Walker. I'm a musician and singer, and I'm new in town. Reed Ruddy suggested I give you a call. If you could give me a call back at your earliest convenience, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. And left my number. A week went by. Tim didn't return my call. So I went on with my life and went back to working on my new record in the freezing apartment. One day, I was recording away, and outside the window, I thought I heard laughing. I went over and looked outside, and there was John Callahan, about three feet away from my window in his wheelchair, laughing his head off. If you don't know who John was, he was a great cartoonist. In his past, he'd been a pretty decent booze hound, and a friend he'd been drinking steady with for a day or two crashed the car they were in, turning John into a quadriplegic. He had just a little upper body strength and started cartooning after the accident clutching a pen between both hands and doing the best he could. He had his cartoons in the LA Weekly, and I loved them. They were always very dark, very offensive, and absolutely hilarious. I remember there was a woman who kept writing into the LA Weekly constantly, complaining about John's cartoons. In particular, the ones that dealt with physical disabilities. She was offended that someone would make light of such a thing. After a while, the LA Weekly posted a small note along with one of her letters. Mr. Callahan is a quadriplegic. She didn't write in again after that. I thought Callahan was amazing, and I was very surprised to learn that he not only lived here in Portland, but in the same neighborhood Kim and I were living in. The first time I saw John in person, he was hauling ass down a crowded sidewalk in his wheelchair, zipping through pedestrians saying, Move! and making a general nuisance of himself. So there I was looking out my apartment window at John, laughing. He sat there for a moment, then looked up at me. I gave him a chin nod. He gave me one back. And off he rolled, back down the street. I wondered what John had been laughing at, so I went outside to look. There on the wall, right under our bedroom window, someone had painted a naked man, bent over, with a bugle sticking out of his ass. There was a thought balloon coming from the naked man's head that said simply, Good. I laughed too. Then went back inside. I was cold. Through the Portland grapevine, I discovered that I had a couple friends who lived in town. One of them, Mark, used to be the guitar player in a band an old girlfriend of mine played bass in. Turned out Mark was currently in a band with Ross, the drummer from that same band my old girlfriend was in. Small world, Portland. The band, in a nod to Twin Peaks, was called the Bookhouse Boys, a trio that played really rockin', groovy, and hilariously rude songs. In my hand. 
All three of the boys were designers at Nike. Kim and I used to go out and see them play all the time. A little sidebar, a few years later, on the day Kurt Cobain killed himself, the DJ in Seattle who announced his death on the radio was wearing a Bookhouse Boys t-shirt. I like trivia. The bass player from the Bookhouse Boys, Toki, and I hit it off right away. We had the same sense of humor. No line you couldn't cross for a laugh. We became immediate friends for life, period. Meanwhile, my album was starting to take shape. At first, it was just a bunch of songs. But as I got deeper into it, I found this pattern emerging. All the songs were ending up to be about characters. Usually, singer-songwriters end up writing endlessly about themselves and all their sniveling problems. Normally, I did too. But something else was happening here. Each song was like a little short story about a different person. I didn't mean to do that. It just happened. I'd read in the news about a German tourist who'd come to America with his girlfriend for an extended stay. The girl ended up falling in love with another guy. The German man was devastated. He found the tallest building he could, went to the roof, and jumped. So I wrote a song about what might have been going on in his head. The song was called 111th Floor. had a song on there about taking a joyride in a car with Satan. This is the scream of a blind locomotive. These are the tears of an angel of tin. Another one about an actress who ends up in a snuff film. another song about an autistic boy named Freddy, who with just a wish could make the seasons change. songs were coming, and coming fast. It felt really good to be in this new place with all this new inspiration. The work was directly reflecting this new place, and the new place was directly affecting the work. I called Tim Ellis again. Nothing. I figured maybe I should try to get myself out into the clubs, playing live. I made a few calls, sent a few demo tapes, and was quite surprised when a place called Belmont's called back and offered me a residency. Wow, cool. Then I heard the details. Every Monday night, solo, 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. Sucker slot. Damn. But hey, it was a gig and I jumped on it. Belmont's back in the day was a smoky old toilet. Terrible sound, surly staff, pissed off clientele. I could work with that. I did that gig for three months. Every Monday, just me, standing on stage singing my little black heart out for between 20 and 30 drunks. 
Not my favorite gig, but I did it, and did it gratefully. They speak of worms, they speak in epitaphs. They speak of me. One night I was up on the stage singing some flannel band sounding thing when this giant biker looking dude walked up to the sound man at the mixing board and screamed, Hey, I hate this guy. Turn him off. I do not want to hear this shit. This son of a bitch sounds like Frank Sinatra. Then he took a few menacing steps toward the stage and screamed, I hate you. And with that, he walked out the door. Frank Sinatra. That's one I hadn't heard before and haven't heard since. However, I have heard the, Hey, I hate this guy. Turn him off. I do not want to hear this shit. I hate you. Part since then. Can't please them all, I guess. Another thing. I didn't know this at the time. But years later, I found out that Tim Ellis, who at this point still hadn't returned my call and who I'd yet to meet, came to Belmont's to check me out. Years later, he told me this, that he'd walked in the door, saw that I was wearing cargo shorts with black leggings, and left without hearing a note. Our apartment was still freezing. I hadn't had any luck getting the landlord to do anything about it, so I sicked Kim on him. We went up to his apartment and knocked. This landlord guy, there was something about him. He gave both Kim and I the creeps. He had brown hair with straight bangs across his forehead, but the rest of his hair went down to his shoulders. So kind of a mullet, but really it just made him look extremely peculiar. He also had a big, thick highway patrolman come catcher mustache. He spoke very softly and always seemed to be annoyed whenever we were speaking to him. From behind the door, we heard, yes, Hi, it's Kim and Jim from downstairs. Can we talk to you if uh, you have a minute? Kim said. Silence. A few moments later. It's not a good time. I'm having my bath. He said from behind the door. Kim and I looked at each other and made an ew face. When might be a good time? Kim asked. Silence. About an hour. I'll come down to your apartment. He said. Okay. See you in a bit, I said. Well, that didn't make him any less creepier, that's for sure. A few hours later, he still hadn't come by the apartment, so Kim and I decided to go out and grab a bite up the street. On our way out the door, we saw the landlord out in the courtyard, just standing there. As we approached him, he noticed us and said, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. I'm on my way to see Schindler's List. I'll call you tomorrow. And he went back in the building, where I'm fairly certain Schindler's List was not playing. Kim looked at me and said, the only reason he's going to that movie is because he thought it was called Schindler's Fist. It was at that very moment I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was living my life with exactly the right person. Our apartment building had a couple of other odd characters. There was a girl whose name I can't remember who lived down the hall. She was a few years younger than Kim and I, and she used to knock on our door at all hours and just come in and hang out. At night, she'd come to our apartment and want to hang out in our bed with us, which sounds much more exciting than it actually was because it was clear she had lonely person disease and looked to us as more parental figures than people she wanted to pluke. One day, the three of us were watching TV on the bed there when she announced, without any fanfare at all, that she had chlamydia. We escorted her to the door, changed our sheets, and I believe that was the end of that. 
Another guy, kind of a stoner dude, I'd see all the time in the building, the neighborhood, and in the bar. Every time I'd see him, I'd say, hey, how you doing? And he'd reply, it's all good. Every single time. It's all good. I was trying to take things a little easier being a newcomer to Portland and all, but this it's all good stuff just irritated the fuck out of me. It's all good. What is that? It's all good. Really? When? Fuck you, you fucking hippie. It's all good. Take that shit and get the fuck down the road, you fucking idiot. Hey, Walker, mellow the fuck out. It's Portland. Meanwhile, the album was coming along pretty well. I'd started adding sound design between the songs, creating little vignettes of audio that would segue between the songs. Creaking doors, rain, a pub filled with drunks, I was using a collection of sound effects that I've been obsessively collecting since I was 12. I hadn't really found a practical application for them until now. Now I was using them to make dreamy little worlds between the songs, and in some cases, during the songs. I was talking to my friend Mark from the Bookhouse Boys, telling him I was getting pretty close to putting out an album. He offered to design the album cover, which was great because A, that was something I hadn't even thought about yet, and B, Mark's a brilliant designer and I knew he'd come up with something cool. He told me he had a friend who was a really interesting artist, and he was going to contact this guy about doing a painting for the front cover. Sounded good to me. I was kind of along for the ride as far as that side of the process went. A few weeks later, Mark told me to come out to Nike and have lunch with him. At lunch, he pulled out this mailing tube and from within it he took this rolled up piece of paper. Check this out, he said. He unrolled it. There was this totally surreal black and white drawing of a giant insect standing on a stage surrounded by footlights made of fire. The insect held a black top hat in one hand and was taking a bow. It was like this artist guide crawled into my head, penetrated my subconscious and spit it out as art. I almost started weeping, it was so cool. Mark just smiled. Pretty tight, yeah, he said. The artist turned out to be a guy named John Bell, a very established artist and designer who created the look of all the ants in the animated film Ants. Wow, Mark really hit that one out of the park for me. I sent the disc and the artwork to a duplicating place, and a few weeks later, the album was out. Alexander's Dark Band can't come And lo and behold, it was a million seller, which means I had a million in my seller. Because back then there was no social media or anything. So if you wanted to sell some copies of something, you had to put in the legwork. I went around to all the record stores in Portland, seeing if I could sell copies there. Some let me, some told me to beat it. I had a little Apple II computer back then, one with the screen the size of a piece of white bread that couldn't do much but do an early version of email and play a little chess but I messed around with it and figured out how to design a little bit. So once I had a list of stores the record was available in, I created a mailer, like a real snail mail mailer, with an ordering sheet inside, 
and I sent it off to everybody I could think of who might be interested. A few weeks later, to my surprise, I started getting orders. So I started filling orders, right there on the floor of the freezing apartment in northwest Portland. It was a damn chore, but that was how it was done back then. I also realized that I needed to get out and play some shows and promote this record. I called Tim Ellis again, and you'll never guess. Nothing. My agent Sam called and told me she'd gotten me a voiceover gig. It was for a kid's video series called We Sing. Kind of a Barney-type thing, a mixture of live humans interacting with puppets. My character was a pufferfish named Spike. Spike was a beatnik, wore a beret, and was a pretty cool cat. So I chose a voice that mimicked Tom Waits a little, raspy and streetwise. After getting the gig, I met the rest of the cast. We were going to be on this gig together on and off for several months. Luckily, they were all a great bunch of folks. And though this was nearly now 30 years ago, I'm still friends with almost all of them to this day. One of the cast was this guy named Craig Crothers. Craig was playing Spike the Pufferfish's best friend, Ink, an octopus. Craig and I had a lot of songs and scenes together, so we hung out a lot. And in turn, we became real-life friends. Then Craig and I introduced our girlfriends to each other, and they got along like a house on fire. Suddenly we had new friends. Nice. One day, after knowing Craig for maybe a month, he said, Hey, you should come and see my band. I had no idea he was even in a band. I knew he sang from the We Sing thing, but a band? He just didn't quite seem the type. When I got home that night, the phone rang. Hello? A very gruff voice spoke. Yeah, Jim Walker. Tim Ellis. I heard you needed to talk to me, so I'm calling you back. Oh, hey, yeah, thanks for getting back to me, Tim. Um, I'm just a new guy in town. I play music, I do voiceover work, and I'm trying to meet people, get an idea of what's going on in town, and, and everybody I speak to mentions you. All roads seem to lead to Tim Ellis. Yeah, well, uh, I'm pretty busy. But if you want to meet up, uh, why don't you come by my studio, Whitehorse Studio, on Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. I'll be there. There was a pause where I know he thought to himself, Damn it, I thought saying 7 a.m. would get this guy off my back. Uh, okay, see you then. Wednesday morning, I was sitting in the Whitehorse Studio parking lot at 6.45 a.m. I didn't like it, but since this was the guy I was supposed to meet, here I was. 7 a.m. came and went. I went to the front door and knocked. No one there. It was cold. I went back to my car. 7.05. At 7.20, an Aerostar van came flying into the parking lot and screeched into the space marked Studio Manager. This guy got out of the car, looking angry. He was built like a fireplug, stocky, strong, his fists and jaw clenched. He had a ponytail, but was bald on top. Skull it. I remember thinking to myself, this is exactly the kind of guy I don't get along with. Way too intense, way too alpha male type A, way too much. This wasn't going to go well. Damn. Jim Walker, he nearly screamed. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, let's go inside. Once inside Whitehorse, Tim began a monologue. Well, yeah, you see, uh, this is a pretty serious deal we got going on here. Got four rooms all tied together. Main tracking room, one smaller tracking room. Main control room's got an SSL, tons of mics, outboard gear, offices up front. There's a mastering room next door, so it's kind of a one-stop, which is the way it was intended. He just talked and talked, nonstop. 
I didn't understand half the shit he was saying and I just wanted to leave. After a 20 minute diatribe, he slowed, then kind of ran out of gas. So, uh, what do you got going on? He asked. Nothing. Absolutely nothing, I said. I'm a new guy in town. I know very few people. I'm trying to meet some more. Well, I can't do anything for you if that's what you're wondering, he said. No, that's fine. I'm glad just to finally meet you. Thanks for showing me around. See ya. And I left. What a waste of time that was, I thought. What a complete and utter waste of time. That night, Kim and I finally went to the bar to see Craig Crothers' band play. It was a trio. Two acoustic guitars and a piano. I couldn't see the band at first as we looked for a table, but I was immediately captivated by the sound of the group. Craig's voice was beautiful and raspy, emotive, and a perfect radio voice. The piano player was using these gorgeous voicings that complemented the acoustic guitars perfectly. They were all playing with incredible dynamics, no one getting out in front too much, everything in its place. And who was a guitar player anyway? This guy was incredible, accompanying Craig's voice in such an amazing way. The voice falling, the guitar falling just behind, echoing phrases, playing all this color and adding so much to the song without overplaying. As we walked to our seats, I finally got a look at this amazing guitar player I was hearing, Tim Ellis. Sam, my voiceover agent, called one day and told me she had an audition for me. But it's a little weird, she said. It's for Minute Maid Lemonade. Okay, I said. It's a ton of money. Better. But, she said, here's the weird part. You have to fly to L.A. for the audition. Oh, I said. And it's tomorrow. What? Tomorrow. But the clients heard your reel and she assured me that you're the only one they want. You're a shoo-in. The audition is just a formality. Formality? Yeah, it's just a formality. Okay. Oh, and you need to pay for your flight and everything out of pocket. Out of pocket? Yeah, but don't worry, you'll get it back when you get your first check. The whole thing sounded dodgy, but I opened my skinny little wallet and dug deep, because I was a shoe-in. So I booked a way too expensive flight for first thing the following day. Got to L.A. about noon, had lunch with a friend, drove around my old stamping grounds for a while, then headed to the audition, which was at 4 p.m. I got to the studio, some little place in the valley, around 3.45, checked in with reception, and waited. I was the only person in the waiting room. I guess that was good. I was a shoo-in. This was a formality, I was told. So, it follows that there's no one else auditioning. Okay. And I relaxed. Just a teeny bit. That's when the door flew open and in walked Steve Heitner. And if you don't know the name, he's the guy who played Kenny Banya on Seinfeld, the comic who gave Jerry his old Armani suit and keeps repeating the line, that's gold, Jerry, gold. That's gold, Jerry, gold. He looked me up and down and said, you here for the lemonade? When he said that, he looked just like he did on Seinfeld when he said to Jerry, you won the suit yet? Yep, I said, lemonade. Oh, he said, and he looked kind of bummed. I think maybe someone told Steve he was a shoe-in too. Of course, I suddenly realized that he was. He was getting this job. He was not only a known person, but he was much better suited, pardon the pun, for the gig. I went into the audition, gave it my best, said bye to Banya, drove back to the airport and was in Portland by 10 p.m. One guess as to who got the gig. Well... He was the best, Jerry. The best. 
Kim and I became regulars at Craig Crothers' gigs. The shows were really fun. The band was amazing. The tunes were great. Everybody played so good, and all the guys were funny. Lots of joking around on stage and not taking it too seriously. Very refreshing from most of the gigs I'd been to where the bands were so earnest and so desperate to be taken seriously that there's no way you can. Craig and the trio were a blast. One day Craig called me and told me that Gary, the piano player, was leaving the group. Oh, that's too bad, I said. Then he asked me if I'd join the band. Your band? Yeah. What, playing guitar? No, keyboards. Well, I don't really play keyboards. Not really. And he said, eh, you're one of those guys that can just figure that stuff out. What do you say? And suddenly, I was in my favorite band in Portland. The first gig I played with Craig and Tim Ellis was at the Portland Art Museum at a big deal event called Museum After Hours. It was a happy hour thing, 5 to 8 p.m. Craig told me about it, then said, I'll see you there. And I was like, when are rehearsals? He said, we've never had a rehearsal. We just play. I'll give you my record. You can learn whatever you want. My blood went a little cold. No rehearsals? Just play. This was all a bit loosey-goosey. I liked rehearsing. It made me feel prepared. I didn't like this. But onward I went. I listened to all of Craig's albums and made notes on a stack of recipe cards. I got to the museum and found the guys. On stage was a beautiful Yamaha piano rented by the museum for the show. I asked if we were going to run through anything. Nope. Okay, here goes nothing. The place was packed, maybe 350 or 400 people. Craig asked me, what are you drinking? Oh, I'm good. I think I'll just keep frosty so I don't mess up. Craig said, wrong answer. He walked away and a few minutes later came back with three Spanish coffees. A Spanish coffee is something I'd never heard of. And if I had, I would have avoided just from the sound of it. You take a wine glass and you dip the rim in confectioner's sugar. Into the glass, you pour two shots of 151 rum. Then you set this on fire, and the glass is moved around so that the fire melts the sugar on the rim. Then you add Kahlua, triple sec, and coffee, and the whole thing is topped with heavy cream and nutmeg. Yeah, it's delicious. And as they say about the Spaniard, as it's affectionately known in Portland, one is too many and two aren't enough. They go down way too easy and pack a hell of a wallop. So we pounded those down and ordered another round. I was totally tanked before the gig started. Craig called out the first number. I found the recipe card with the title, though I couldn't remember a damn thing about the song at that moment. I placed it on the piano in front of me, and we were in it. I don't know if I played great that night, but I know at least I kept up and didn't embarrass myself too badly despite the booze. Craig and Tim seemed to think it was okay. They kept me in the band. I don't think in the three or four years I was in that trio that we ever played one show sober. Intense band. Not for the faint of heart or liver. I went out shortly after that museum show and bought a used Wurlitzer electric piano. It was a great sounding portable keyboard from the early 70s, covered with burns and melted spots from cigarettes being set all over it. It was a great instrument. The only problem with it was that each key was attached to a thin metal tine. The tine was tuned to the pitch of the key being struck. Well, as I found out live on stage, those tines eventually start wearing out the more you hit them. And since the whole point of a keyboard is to hit the notes, what would happen was I'd be playing merrily along when suddenly the pitch I was playing would become slightly out of tune. What's going on here, I'd think. Then the pitch would get worse and worse 
until it sounded like I was just clamming all over the place. Eventually, Craig and Tim would start looking over at me because it was sounding like a shit sandwich. I'd begin to avoid the key that was going south, and then there would be a sound that would loudly amplify through the PA system. Pang! It sounded like a bullet ricochet. It was the sound of the tine snapping in half. The audience would jump 10 feet in the air, and I'd get chewed out by Craig for not having my gear together. Whatever. The next day, I'd have to beg, steal, or borrow from any repair shop I could find a new tine. And the tines did not come pre-tuned either, so I needed to find someone to install the new tine and then tune it by using a metal file, filing away at the tine in teeny increments with a tuner hooked up to it to get just the right pitch. It was a complete and utter pain in the ass. Luckily, those tines didn't break very often, maybe once a year. But every time it happened, I wished that I was playing something with less moving parts, like a piccolo. So, here I was, about a year after hitting town, doing voiceover work, got my first CD out, and I'm playing with one of the more active, we played three or four nights a week, and well-known bands in town. Not bad. I'd come to a new city and reinvented myself. Pretty good. There was a music production place in Portland called Newton Bard. There wasn't much call for writing and recording TV and radio jingles in Portland, but if it ever did come up, Newton Bard got most of that kind of work. Since in the past I'd been involved with a lot of jingles, I'd sent Newton Bard my reel, hoping they'd need another composer at some point. One day, they called. Wow! They wanted to know if I could come in on Monday, meet everyone, and see if I was the right fit for the place. This was really exciting to me. I liked the idea of that kind of work and being part of a team. I couldn't wait. I was there bright and early the following Monday morning. I was given a tour, met everyone, and we all seemed to get along fine. And then I was led downstairs to reception. The guy in charge said, so we have a session starting in about 20 minutes. So if you could just stay down here at the desk and catch the phones for a while, that'd be great. Thanks. He walked away. Wait, catch the phones? What the fuck was this guy talking about? I was here to make music, not man the front desk. But I said, sure, and sat down. And when the phone rang, I said, Newton Bard, how can I direct your call? And sent the call to one of the studios. One of the engineers there was a guy named Tor. Super cool guy. We'd chit-chat a little bit when he'd walk past the desk. Finally, I pulled him aside and told him I'd been brought in as a composer, but suddenly I'm answering phones? I asked him if he knew what was up. He said, all I know is that there's already two full-time composers here. That's Newton and Bard and they don't have enough work between the two of them. I really don't think they have any intention of bringing you on as a staffer. Who knows, I might be wrong, but I don't think so. A few minutes later, Bard came down to the desk and told me I was doing a terrific job. Now, could I come up to the session in progress and take everyone's lunch orders? Everything inside me wanted to stick my middle finger in his face and tell him to fuck the fuck off. Instead, I went into a zen experience. I went to the studio and took all the client's orders. Then I called the orders into the restaurants. A bit later, the food was delivered. I took it all, arranged it nicely on plates, and brought it up to the clients. 45 minutes later, I went back up to the session and collected all the dirty plates. I went to the kitchen area and washed all the dishes. Then I took out the trash. Then I swept up the entire kitchen and reception area. Then I went out to the front of the building and swept up all the leaves on the sidewalk. I bagged them and put them in the bin. Then I found a rake and raked up all the leaves on the building's grounds. 
I bagged those up and stuck those in the bin. The engineer, Tor, saw me doing all this and looked at me like I was completely out of my mind. But I cleaned and washed, I dusted and vacuumed, I got Newton barred spick and span, all while still catching the phones. The day wound down and the sessions were over and Bard came down to the reception desk. He looked around and whistled. I can't believe how clean everything is. Great job, Jim. Listen, I've been talking to Newton and we'd like to offer you a full-time job here. A full-time job? Yeah, as our receptionist. Oh, well, thanks but no thanks. Oh, why not? Because this is a whole lot of bullshit. See you later. And I walked out. I glanced back, and I'll never forget the look on his face. It was utter confusion. Personally, I think it was the best prank I ever pulled. (laughs) 